welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. Thank you so much for listening to the Straw Hat Podcast this week. We're recording a few days before Shavuot uh, in uh, early May. Uh, and this is now the just on the heels of the second Shabbat since the city expanded our capacity limit. Uh, we had been for many, many months limited to no more than 50 people for any in-person prayer gathering. And now uh, we're able to space people out in our large sanctuary. We have space for up to 110. So we had, I think, about 70, 80 people who turned up for tefillah the last two Shabbatot. It's been... It's been really nice. It's been kind of felt normal. It's looked kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's because I'm forgetting what normal really was. <laughs> but uh, I, I've, I've really enjoyed enjoyed Shul. I, I, I want to take a moment to share an idea that I have, uh, that I shared in Shul and I've shared with other people. And uh, it's sort of animating my understanding of this moment. Uh, the very first tefillah that many people say when they come to Shul each day. It's printed on the first page of many, many Sidorim. is Matovu Ohelecha Yaakov. Oh, how goodly are your tents, O Jacob. Uh, and it's, uh, that, I guess, the tents of Jacob is the synagogue. So we say it when we come to synagogue every morning. Uh, or if you haven't been in the synagogue uh, in three months or six months or 15 months, uh, it's certainly an appropriate tefillah to say when you return to the synagogue. But the original source of this blessing is Bilam, who was hired to curse um, the Israelites in the desert. And instead he emerges with a blessing, and Rashi, quoting rabbinic tradition, says that Bilaam was, see, he saw how our tents, the actual tents in the desert, were arranged such that the doorways were oriented away from the other doorways, so that when we looked out our windows, at our doors, we didn't see into somebody else's tent. We arranged ourselves in the desert in a way that protected other people's privacy. And so there's like, a lot to unpack there. It's a very rich uh, teaching about the Jewish value of privacy and preserving privacy. And uh, I know Sarah's done research in Hezek Re'iyah, the whole like concept in, in Halakha, the damage that you can cause someone else by seeing their business, which is not your business. But I, I also think it's a very like helpful piece of Torah for this moment as we're coming back to shul, as we're saying matovu, to really, really respect the privacy of other people who are making their own decisions that are that may also be safe and responsible, but are appropriate for them in terms of when they're going to come back to shul and how much longer they're going to wait. They're, you know, everything in America has become polarized and has become partisan. And so this too, like COVID policy, of course, has become polarized and partisan. And that causes a real acute risk for the shul that people will say, oh, like the shul now is having 80 people gathered indoors for prayer. Um, I don't feel safe doing that for myself. And therefore, also, I'm really angry at the shul. Or mm. the shul is still asking people to wear a mask uh, when they gather in shul, even though we have a pretty high vaccination rate, thank God, in our congregation. Um, that seems overly cautious to me. And therefore, I'm really angry at the synagogue. But, you know, So that, that's what happens when everything gets filtered through a partisan, polarized lens. Um, like just differences of like how people are choosing and different choices that are being made by different people um, end up being like really, really alienating. I think it's just really, that's like such a destructive uh, kind of um, 
like way of thinking and I just want to encourage everyone to avoid it. It doesn't help. <laughs> no matter what you think is the right thing to do, it doesn't help to, to like see everything in that polarized way uh, and instead just like we're so happy we're back in shul whenever you're back in shul and also let's respect people's um, like own timeline. So like, I don't know, like I think we've, we've just been talking about things that we've done, things we haven't done, trips we're taking, trips we're not taking and how <laughs> our own feelings about that um, and it's just, it's a very personal thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely up to anyone's comfort level of what the choices they're making. I certainly, I, I love that Torah of respecting people's privacy and understanding there's a different calculus to everyone's decisions, everyone's situation is different, and to let people go at their own pace. Uh, even when people make bad decisions, like objectively wrong decisions <laughs> that are like reckless and like just totally un- irresponsible, it still doesn't help to actually demonize them and shame them, right? That's just not a helpful, um, mm. like, public health tool. It's just not useful, and, and so... Uh, it's just, mm-hmm. just, just not right. So, right, so not like responding out of anger is also like a great, like a pastoral uh, wisdom, right? Yes. Not to, even in interpersonal, any interpersonal relationship, not responding out of a place of anger, noticing the anger, and then once you're able to move through it, to then respond in a in a productive way. I like that. That's giving tips on that. That's not uh, <laughs> easier said than done. Of course, <laughs> it's easier said than done. That's uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I guess in a way, I guess I guess I want to tell you again. We we respect your your privacy and uh, and, and the decision making that you're going through as you decide when and how to return to shul. And uh, we hope you extend that to everyone else in your community and wherever communities you're listening and, and, the, and the choices people are making. Uh, and, and we hope to see you back at, at some point soon when when you feel ready to do that. Um, we're really we're trying again as fast as we can with all the safety hurdles and logistical hurdles that we have to like bring people back together as, yes. as fast as we can. It's also been really exciting to have kids programming back on shul premises. It was like I know it was a little noisy for folks inside to hear us outdoors with the ventilation system we have sent up, set up, but uh, but having kids back, meeting people in person for me, it's, uh, I'm meeting a lot of folks in person for the first time still. <laughs> um, so that's been really really exciting. Um, so again, at your own pace, but I'd love to meet you in person. <laughs> Especially also people who might uh, help. Uh, oh, <laughs> yes. Especially people who might be available to volunteer to, to help us uh, uh, with our kids programming. We are searching for staff for uh, people who are excited and energized by the return of kids programming to Shul. Um, we are actively searching for a third group leader uh, and for people to sign up for our both Tot and Gan Shabbat uh, rotations or parent rotations. So if that's you, uh, whether you have a kid that age and you want to join or you don't, and you're just excited about it and have worked with kids before and, um, reach out, please let us know. Uh, you'll see uh, signups going out, uh, sign up sheets for rotations. We're going to hopefully try to, uh, get it staffed for a few weeks in a row. So let's, uh, let's try and get that momentum going. I would say, as some, you know, as someone who's worked at Ante Shalom now for a bunch of years, like finding good people to staff these programs has always been like a, a real. Um, it's always taken a lot of effort because it's not a skill set that everyone has. It's not not everyone has the right personality and the right background and is available with the energy to be energetic and 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 you know on Shabbat morning. Uh, I also know as a parent that I'm just so so grateful to all of the people yes. who led groups that my children attended over the years. It really. Uh, shaped their Shabbat experience, and they learned a lot of Torah from these people. And and us parents got to have a shul experience, right. uh, no, you know, with, with a certain kind of uh, joy and relaxation, knowing that our kids were doing something that was fun and educational, and with peers and with mm-hmm. role models and all of that. So it just it's right. a really wonderful way to contribute. Yes, huge shout out to our volunteers so far. Um, 
And people we've paid to do it also. And people we've paid. Yes, this is a paid or volunteer gig, however you're you're willing. And I'm also happy to talk people through it. As someone who uh, went into education after sitting in yeshiva for a very long time, uh, a lot is learned on the job, and that's okay. And I'm, and a lot is learned through mentorship, and that's okay. So even if you don't have experience with it, totally happy to talk you through it, to support you as, as you grow into the role, um, to co-teach with you. Uh, we're flexible, and we need you. Thank you. Thank you. So Shavuot is coming in a few days. Can you tell me something about Shavuot? Share, share me that idea about Shavuot. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So on that theme of, of uh, reopening and uh, building towards the way our services were, a new normal, as people as we've been saying, uh, I've been really thinking about this Torah from Rabbeinu B'chaye. Um, it's kind of like uh, reminiscent of things we were speaking about. Uh, Rabbeinu B'chaye on... Uh, on, uh, on the words Bami Bar Sinai, comments that the Torah is acquired, it was given in three ways. It was given Ba'esh in fire, Bamaim in water, and Bamidbar in the desert. Um, so he goes into each of these aspects of what does that mean that the Torah was given through each of these three mediums or in these three ways. Um, and the Torah about the Torah, about Torah being given in the desert um, is a Torah which speaks to me. Um, and he says, Lama Bamidbar, why was the Torah given specifically in the desert? Uh, to teach you that a person does not really truly acquire internalized Torah until you make yourself hefker, which is the legal idea of, uh, of being ownerless. Kamidbar, uh, like the wilderness, like the desert. And I've been sitting with that idea of uh, when it comes to reopening and rebuilding as well, uh, and even coming to Shavuot now, of we're all carrying so much and it's going to take a while for us to all process collectively. Um, and we're still not all at the point of, okay, I'm ready to even step in that direction. So, again, respecting where everyone's at. Um, but making yourself like a Midbar, what does it mean to, to come and say, okay, I'm not going to go. Re- um, instinctively back, reflexively back to the way things were, but I'm going to take this opportunity to act out of a place of openness and and kind of a clear slate of like a midbar, an open-mindedness of, I wonder what shul can look like going forward. I wonder what my relationship to shul can be going forward. What 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 was missing for me in that, in that absence? Um, what am I coming back for? What do I... What am I asking for, new or different? What can I be open to that might be different? Yeah, I hope the answer is not, you know, I decided that a second cup oh. of coffee and reading the paper <laughs> in bed is like a much more pleasant job this morning. I hope that's not the answer. I hope... Uh, I, oh, I hope. it's all in the context of Kniyat Torah. It's about saying uh, acquiring Torah for oneself. Surely there's a Torah to coffee, and I've taught about that on Shavuot, and, you know, thank God for coffee for enabling the study of Torah. We're amen, talking about amen. in the service of Torah. Okay, okay. Uh, of what does it mean to internalize Torah and make... and and, and uh, um, rethink or rebuild our relationship to God in this moment, uh, making yourself like a midbar and saying, okay, I've, yes, I've been through a lot. And if I can put aside, you know, not, obviously we can't put aside everything we've been through, but if I can kind of say like, okay, I know what wasn't working and how can I be like half a little bit of like open to something different, new, 
to connecting in a, in a different way, in a new way. I really like that. You know, like there was a style, of, you know, back when I gave formal sermons every week, you know, the, the style <laughs> you like, you had like a core idea and you say, oh, here's true for yourself as a person, here's true within the orbit of your family or your friends and here how it's true for us as a community. So I think like this message it's is like, structure. yeah, yeah like a classic like sermon 101, right? So, uh, so I, I think this is like really, um, it really fits that that like that model. This lesson can be applied, like as you just said, like on an existential level, on a psychological level, to make oneself have care, to acquire new things, like leave behind the patterns that we acquired over many years, to like take advantage of these new opportunities. And it's certainly true, um, as our shul, like with, with many of our colleagues and within the leadership of this congregation, we're thinking right now, like, okay, as shul becomes more normal, like which what of the old normal do we want to leave behind? Like we don't have to have a three-hour Shabbat morning service. We learned how to do it in 90 minutes. And in some ways, 90 minutes is a lot better than three hours. And what of those elements uh, were really value-added? And what of those elements were, were not so value-added? And is there a way to uh, maybe some of the good things that took a lot of time can be right. siphoned off for some other moments in the week? And maybe, uh, or, or maybe no, maybe things that other parts were, took a lot of time, but they brought a lot of value. And I think those are like really, uh, maybe frightening conversations to have because sure. it's like a lot of, of like old assumptions have to be unpacked but also I think really a great opportunity yeah. this like healthcare status we can like you know let's take it take hold of it and take ownership mm-hmm. of it and make something new absolutely All right it can be it, like you said it really can be frightening to say well what do you mean I'm not going to be just like I was before what, how, what does it mean to be present with how I actually am right now or what I need right now but I think it's an important question and so I think we're up to the challenge awesome yeah. awesome thank you I'm really thrilled to have Joel Bronald and Sarah Hirshhorn on uh, our podcast this episode. We're recording on Monday, May 3rd for some future uh, future broadcast. And I invited uh, Joel and Sarah to come on because uh, among the subjects that I've talked to them about and heard them and seen them uh, discuss are, is the issue of the, the official definition of anti-Semitism, whether anti-Semitism needs an official definition and what it should be. There are, as you might imagine, there are contending definitions out there in the world. And uh, I, I've come to appreciate uh, Joel and Sarah's expertise uh, on these issues uh, um, over the past months and years. And, and I really wanted to kind of share that with with those who listen. Um, these are both members of our shul. Uh, Professor Sarah Hoshorn is a faculty member at uh, at Northwestern and is a published scholar. We've, she's spoken in the shul about her books and her scholarship before. Uh, Joel Bronald is a nonprofit uh, manager and activist and uh, someone with a very storied uh, career in um, peacework and um, interfaith relations and interactions of all kinds. And uh, <laughs> a professional midwife. Okay, that's 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 fine. And and members of our shul amongst the many, many other talented uh, members of our shul. So let, let's get us started. So I, I, I um, Joel, we spoke some some months ago about why there was initially a need uh, for a definition of anti-Semitism, the origins of the so-called IRA definition. Uh, maybe we'll start there and then we can see its problematics. And then Sarah, please share your own perspective as as we sure, develop and this thank you, Rabbi and Sarah. It's always a pleasure to to be able to be now in a recorded conversation with you rather than just in our regular Shabbat chats. Um, I think, look, it, this is really interesting. So in 2004, five, six, in 2006, I was an undergrad at Bristol University, okay? And um, uh, during my three years in university in the UK and in other places, there was a real challenge that uh, following the Second Intifada and throughout the early 2000s, there were instances really across Europe of 
instances where people would be protesting outside of shuls. Uh, they would be attacks on the Jewish community, people spraying like F Israel and other things. And the police and authorities genuinely didn't know how to classify these crimes. They were like, is this about foreign policy? Is this about something else? And it was very clearly to the Jewish community, a direct attack on them. Their, their institutions were being attacked. Their students were being protested against in ways that seemed well beyond any political debate. It was often violent. There were threats. And the the EUMC working definition at the time, which is what people had, which was a European monitoring service, it didn't seem people were doing anything. And into that environment came what became known as the International Holocaust Remembrance uh, Alliance, the IRA definition, um, which was originally meant to help people as a working definition, not as a legal document, not even as a policy tool, by the way, but to help monitors monitor anti-Semitism. And it said at the time, you know, here are some examples. And, you know, if you're confused, you can use this as something that can help you understand, which made a lot of sense at the time. You know, flash forward to today, IRA has taken on a, a life of its own from there have been pushes to institutionalize it as law, to use it as vetting standards for NGOs. And to use it in ways that the authors, frankly, never intended it, it would seem to be used. It was it was created to be utilized not as a tool of state authoritatism, authority. There aren't definitions of racisms, for example, that the Department of Education in the United States or the Department of Justice uses when it comes to African-American racism, when it comes to Islamophobia or anything else. But IRA has has taken on a life as a policy tool and a continuation of the of the never ending saga, it seems, of what should be the legislative response to issues when it comes to Israel Palestine. And so into that space, the question becomes if the instead of talking about anti-Semitism that is rising rapidly, we started having a debate about the definitions of anti-Semitism. And if you remember, Rabbi, we started some of these conversations because there was a push to try and uh, and say that BDS was hate speech, boycotts, divestments and sanctions. And when that failed at the federal level, people quickly switched to say, well, let's institutionalize the IHRA. And President Trump's administration tried to use the IHRA to basically say anyone who says anything that would, you know, uh, support BDS would be in violation of the IHRA. Uh, and not just that, the, the the lack of clarity with IRA around what a double standard means and who gets to dictate if there's a double standard, that gray area was rife for abuse as the topic of Israel became more partisan. So following the Trump administration, you know, and it's finishing, there was this really big question, what to do with IRA? You had the conference of presidents come out and say, here are, you know, the majority of the conference supports the IRA definition, but the reform movement said, look, we don't want it to see it legislated. It's a useful tool, but don't legislate around it. And in Europe, you've seen uh, you know, 48 countries adopt it, though some of the countries have adopted it still have tremendous problems with anti-Semitism. And so IRA really became a very internal conversation around, you know, we want these countries to adopt it, and then what? It's useful as a monitoring tool, but what? And so Coming from that, there were two other definitions that were sort of launched or came out with over the past few months. One was called the Nexus document, which was 12 or 13 academics in the US who came out with a statement. And then there was something that was called the Jerusalem Declaration on Antisemitism, the JDA, which was 180 tenured scholars, many of the top 
Jewish studies professors, Holocaust educators, people who span the gamut of Israel-Palestine, that wrote a definition really saying what anti-Semitism isn't, right? And again, it's not a conclusive document, but the aim was to try and be a corrective in the gray area of IRA to say, if IRA doesn't give you know people a clear definition of what is and isn't anti-Semitic, and if it's causing so much consternation that we're not talking about anti-Semitism, we're talking about definitions, the JDA tries to, to utilize its perch to help clarify where that's needed, to say that policy prescriptions, whether you support a one-state solution, whether you support boycotts, they aren't unforgivably and intrinsically anti-Semitic. To, to promote them doesn't make you an anti-Semite. If you use anti-Semitic terminology, if you use anti-Semitic tropes, if you are attacking Jews, if you say that Jews need to be thrown into the sea, that is anti-Semitism. But a policy prescription alone is not anti-Semitic. And in doing so, try and save this conversation from being one about definitions to refocusing the conversation to say, if people are using anti-Semitic terminology and linguistics, we need to call them out, educate them, and in other ways, you know, call that out. But we need to move the conversation away from the gray areas that had existed with IRA and try and clarify because the, the conversation on anti-Semitism had ceased to be about combating anti-Semitism and trying to find it and had become far more about the definitions itself, which at a time of rising anti-Semitism and violent anti-Semitism in America and across the world is not a good place for the Jewish community to be. So that's interesting. I, I the uh, I guess the history of this narrative is that there were you know kind of uh, clearly anti-Semitic um, attacks on Jewish communal buildings, synagogues in Europe, right? That were phrased as attacks on Israel, and so they were kind of uh, confusing the authorities in Europe. Uh, the IHRA definition explained how anti-Israel sentiment could be anti-Semitic, uh, and then but in your I guess narrative, Joel, this sort of uh, came to. Uh, I guess, take over the definition or occupy a lot of the focus of those who are promoting the definition leading to these alternatives. And uh, okay, so Professor Hirschman, I guess, do you see, um, how do you see the story? Um, where, where would you differ from the story as Joel has uh, presented it? Well, I'm an historian by training. So I guess my my uh, inclination is to go back even a little bit uh, further in, in time and perhaps also um, maybe start from the perspective of, you know, the way um, American thinkers were trying to reckon with some kind of definition or understanding of what anti-Semitism would look like after the Holocaust. And this is already a major focus of the acronym organizations that we think about today, the Anti-Defamation League and otherwise, um, already in the 1970s and people were publishing books called The New Anti-Semitism, What Is It? And, you know, that we can say that there was a pretty amorphous definition. I hate to say this on a short podcast, but it was sort of like, you know, the famous Supreme Court understanding of pornography. You kind of like know it when you see it, but like, let's try and be a little bit more um, logical and trying to at least identify some major exponents of it. So, you know, these books would look at activity that was resurging into what we today call white nationalism. They would talk about um, the movement uh, founded by Louis Farrakhan in the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s. They were also beginning to try to articulate, particularly after um, the rise of kind of left-wing guerrilla groups in Europe and elsewhere, um, that it, you know later in the 1970s got involved in violent activity like hijacking airplanes, et cetera, that you know, just this understanding that maybe there was some kind of overlap between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism, but without having any real under notional understanding of what that was about. Clearly, you know, we can fast forward over the period of the 1980s and 1990s to sort of, you know, get us up to where Joel 
brought us into the conversation where I think the, you know, the real rising tide of violent anti-Semitism in Europe and further, I think the day-to-day concerns that Joel outlined, you know, became quite pressing. And to my mind, the IHRA definition is, or the IRA definition is a tool that in some ways demonstrates that Holocaust education across the Western world largely failed um, after, you know, since, since the Holocaust, that if, if in fact Holocaust education had been such a, you know, bright and shining success, we wouldn't need, um, you know, websites to tell us what, 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 what's wrong with anti-Semitism. Um, but here we are. Um, and apparently there still is a need to try and qualify what this is. My feeling about the IHRA definition is actually, I think it's, it's satisfactory um, in terms of, you know, trying to put together a very short definition in a series of examples to try to outline some possible contemporary or even postmodern permutations of what anti-Semitism might be with the understanding that um, you know, there's various schools of thought about what anti-Semitism is. Is it some kind of, you know, fixed organism that reoccurs in every generation? Has it mutated into new forms? Um, this, you know, conversation sounds very relevant to us in, in the days of COVID-19, where we've suddenly become very aware of this kind of um, terminology. Where I think the IHRA fails is not in anything that it's produced, it fails like all the other definitions in having a kind of enforcement mechanism that if you violate the IHRA, where do you go to send your complaint? I don't know. There's no address that says, you know, complain here um, about um, IHRA violations. And that seems to me to be the problem. I'm a little more skeptical. Um, you know, we can, we can speak about this more about the other documents that have been produced, which I think are really fixated on the understanding of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is a Zionist document in the sense that it allows for the state of Israel to have the right to exist and also for the state of Israel to not be compared to other previous manifestations of anti-Semitism, Nazism, etc. Um, and that, I think, bothers a lot of people. Um, and the complaint, again, has been that this will violate the free speech rights either of Palestinians themselves or of anti-Zionists of any stripe. But again, I think reading through the criteria of the IHRA definition, the question, I, I don't see those questions as being embedded within the document. I see them being embedded within the question of whether there is an adequate enforcement mechanism for the document and not the need for other alternative explanations of what anti-Semitism might be. So that's, I think, where we are. The one, I guess the one last thing I would say is that combating anti-Semitism has now yeah. become an extremely politicized field, um, not only because, let's say, on a college campus, the average administrator responsible for diversity, equity, and inclusion may not um, necessarily have the kind of textbook understanding of what the new anti-Semitism may be about. They understand that, you know, swastika scrawled in on, you know, bathroom stall equals anti-Semitism, but the more nuanced, I guess, what my students might call, you know, microaggressions or social media presence or um, conflation of social justice issues at home with foreign policy abroad maybe doesn't fit into the textbook quite as neatly as some of more traditional forms of anti-Semitism, particularly right-wing anti-Semitism, which I think has been more easily identifiable for some than left-wing anti-Semitism. We're having a major debate 
in the United States, which I think actually does not exist in Europe, where everybody mostly agrees that, that, that you know, you can look both ways before you cross the street, that both right-wing anti-Semitism and left-wing anti-Semitism exist. We're still trying to adjudicate that here in the United States, and that's become extremely um, heavily politicized, even to the extent that, you know, the U.S. position in combating anti-Semitism is now seen as a, you know, political position, um, you know, or even a kind of Trumpian uh, notion. So I think part of the problem here is that we can't even have a cool debate about anti-Semitism because everything has, you know, whether anti-Semitism exists and where it comes from um, is now um, kind of a litmus test for your, you know, your behavior maybe at the voting booth or your broader um, ideological orientation so if, if i can i just want to pick up on something sarah said and, and add to add to it in two ways one i'd say that the conversation's still alive in the uk as sarah knows very well having spent she spent many years there listening to my accent uh despite being a member of anche shalom i will you know betray to the listeners that i was not born here in 60657 um but uh it's still live there. And and Sarah's point about the politicization and enforcement is really where all of this comes a crop up. We could have a, a very good academic debate on the IHRA, on Nexus and the JDA. But sadly, this isn't an academic debate. And as Sarah points out, it's all politics, which is a tragedy for the community. And, you know, as a newcomer to America, this this obsession with well, anti-Semitism only exists from white nationalists. I'm like, it's so frankly not true that it's the only case. And sadly, not only the case of white nationalism. Rabbi, in our own case, when someone firebombed our shul, we still don't know who did it. And it's very possible it could have come from Farrakhine supporters. It could have come from radical Islamists. It could have come from white nationalists. It could have come from yobs, as we'd say in the UK, of just like random people looking for doing something we don't know and that fragility is terrifying and the the saddest point of this is as i loved your point sarah about like the acronym of the jewish communities are having these political fights as jews in america you know look at our daycares definitely can't say that on the podcast look at our daycares look at our look at when we have to make choices as parents and the amount of security our children need in 2021 America, the amount of money our community has to lobby and spend on security, that's our lived reality. And instead, we're having nonsense arguments, right, about, well, does anti-Semitism only come from the right or does it come from the left as well? Or does it come? Yeah. Anti-Semitism, sadly, is a, it comes from a lot of places. But then, you know, I, I just want to inject into this something very interesting I find about why the left and right are so bad at this in America. You know, for the right, Zionism speaks to a nativism that it wants to promote. And so for them, like, if I support Israel, I can't be anti-Semitic. And even if some of my fellow travelers might wear some very dodgy paraphernalia, um, I'm not an anti-Semite. Look at what Sean Hannity said this week. You know, I'm not an anti-Semite. I love Israel. And on the left, it's like, you know, uh, it's about white nationalism. Stop complaining about someone who made a mistake about saying something's Rothschild or stop talking to us about Louis Farrakhan. Come on, man. Like, look at the Nazis marching and they're shooting up your shawls. I'm like, I'm terrified of it all. Like, and that's okay. And I'm supposed to be allowed to be. And so, uh, you know, the challenge is we need to center the victims in this. But I think one of the challenges with the IHRA to, to bring the topic back is by centering the victims, Jews, there has been through the political enforcement because people have taken this as an Israel Palestine stuff. The people who are most impacted by the enforcement of IRA, not the intellectualism, have been 
activists on the Palestinian side. So it creates this weird thing that some people say, well, we need the Palestinians to tell the Jews what anti-Semitism is. Absolutely not. Yet at the same time, we can't define another person's narrative as un- irredeemably anti-Semitic if we want to actually tackle anti-Semitism that comes from the left, if that's where we think it's coming from. Because if prima facie, it's irredeemably anti-Semitic to question the ju- you know, the narrative of Zionism, then we're never going to get anywhere. Because if you call someone an anti-Semite before they've even walked into the room, I'm not saying that's what proponents of IRA are doing, but some people use IRA to do so. And that's part of the challenge about a monopolistic definition. There's no point in having this conversation because then they're just like, I think that anytime you say anti-Semitism is ridiculous and then we can't actually tackle the things that are scaring our community rightfully so, so much. Thank you. Um, If I just... uh... Reflect back, I hear from you that uh, the positive elements of the IRA definition are undermined by efforts to codify it into law. Um, Professor Hirschen, I'm curious if you feel that there can be a positive value in having a definition codified into law, whether it's IRA or one of the, one of the others. I think the problem with um, you know the lawfare movement in general is not that um, codifying understandings of racism into law are inherently problematic. I mean, we have hate crime statutes in this country. We have other forms of legal prosecution of bigotry, and you know, and and I think many other countries similarly have um, a you know juridical apparatus for dealing with that. I think the problem again is that this. Um, understanding of combating anti-Semitism through law has been associated particularly with one ideological stream over the other and one understanding of what uh, anti-Semitism is over the other. You know, I I, I also um, think that there are limits to free speech. I mean, you know, I I obviously, you know, uh, only did, (laughs) you know, I took one constitutional law class at university and obviously, um, you know, I, I failed my, you know, Jewish parents uh, dream of my becoming an attorney like my father. But um, from what I what I can say about this is that, you know, free speech was not um, entirely protected. I mean, you can't you don't have free speech to say bigoted speech. You don't have free speech to say anti-Semitic speech. And you don't and you certainly don't have free speech to do the, you know, the fire in the theater, essentially to promote uh, imminent violence. So. The understanding that people are saying this, you know, this is a violation of our free speech. Well, I mean, I just think that not everything um, is sanctioned. Maybe people feel on a, on a university campus that everything is possible, but actually in the real world, the place that many academics never, never sojourn to, you know, there is a little bit more nuance there. I also agree with Joel that fundamentally, I think that um, Jews get to decide what is anti, anti-Semitism and they don't need to be, you know, anti-Semitism explained by any other group that feels that they, they know better than we do what anti-Semitism is. And, the, and I feel like in some ways it's our free speech to say we find this to be anti-Semitic that's actually being curtailed by other groups who've decided what anti-Semitism is and moreover decided not only what they think examples of anti-Semitism might be and who are the exponents of it, but also more largely where anti-Semitism fits within a broader understanding of racism, which I'm not sure the Jews or all Jews necessarily agree on that anti-Semitism is just a branch of the general tree of racism and that the same folks that um, are, are involved across the board. And I, and I, I think that there's sort of a, if not, you know, sort of a, a free speech by legal definition, I think there's a question about who gets to speak for us. And when we no longer get to speak for and us, I, I think that, that but is I, Just to like drill down onto sort of the, that point, right? So, you know, we do get to decide, but 
and there is a there is a definite but here. We can't prima facie say that people who we have very passionate disagrees with that their policy prescriptions are institutionally anti-Semitic. I think that I'm not saying that you're claiming they are. I'm not even saying that Ira written, but Ira, as it has often been explained, is if uh, let you know, let's get to the elephant in the room. Like, if you're a one-state supporter, right? You're not an anti-Semite by the fact that you're a one-state supporter. I just, I just don't believe that. But true. you're also not I violating Ira. I, I, I agree that you're not. But if, for example, on BDS, for example, and you do hold Israel to a double standard because you believe that you want to be fixated on Israel because that's what you care passionate about, I also don't think that you're a focus on Israel and your claim that you want to boycott to try and adjust their principles. Though I disagree passionately with BDS, I don't think it's anti-Semitic. I think if you use anti-Semitic terminologies, everything else, completely out of bounds. But the the gray area around double standard does not help university administrators. If people are protesting Israel and they're using, you know, I actually think IRA on the Holocaust imaging is very strong and I, I think it's out of bounds. Though I will say, Einstein spoke about Nazism when he complained about Israel. And so would we say that that was anti-Semitic? I, by the way, probably would in today's thing. I, I, I don't think you can use Nazi analogies, but there are some and that's, you know, I, some people say you can and that a lot of Israelis throw away, throw around Nazi terminology a lot. I personally would ban the whole lot of it, but I am not, you know, Lord of the universe. However, I do think that the way that because of the gray around double standard and there is a focus for some people on Israel, I'll give you another thing. I am uncomfortable by the fact that for many progressives, the only foreign policy issue they care about seems to be Israel. It makes me uncomfortable. It does. I'm, I'm going to be straight out. But I don't think it's anti-Semitic. Whereas others who have used IRA, and I can, you know, chapter and verse, to say that double standard indicates anti-Semitism, and that's where it falls down. And I, I do think that we can't gaslight I'm not claiming you are, but the reason there is a public debate is that this has been used. People are saying that the University of Virginia should have never invited Peter Bynum up because he breaks IRA because he advocates for one state. I mean, come on. I mean, like, this is where instead of having a conversation about anti-Semitism, we're having a conversation about a definition and its enforcement. And I, I and it worries me, right? Because if we do want to tackle the tropes and the challenges, whether it comes from Farrakhan, yeah, yeah uh, when the tropes of the Farrakhan and we need to be able to engage on this. And, I, you know, it, it, it's it's very emotive for people. And I'll say one other thing and then I'll, I'll stop because I know I've gone on a lot. My real worry about these definitions is they've become totemic, right? They're totems. It's become like what football team you're on. And that's such a tragedy for a lot of reasons. IRA is not perfect. The JDA is not perfect. Nexus isn't perfect. And hopefully by getting all of this, we can get closer at the truth. However, because of the consensus around IRA, people who have even suggested alternative definitions have been said that they're abetting anti-Semites. So to even suggest something, saying you're breaking consensus, you're helping Jeremy Corbyn, for example, you're helping those. And that's so offensive to these people who are, who are really trying to struggle with the limits of free speech. And that's where I think this morphs from a debate academically into one that really is quite negative. If you are, if you have a challenge with IRA, you should be as if you whether you're Jewish or not, you should have the ability to talk about it, especially if you're Jewish. It's coming from a Jewish place to say, I actually want to improve on it without being accused that you're breaking consensus or that you're 
you're abetting anti-Semites. I think that's where this debate moves from what is a very passionate and important intellectual one into that horrible politics that I think we've seen again and again. But anyway, sorry, Sarah, go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, what I wanted to say about the uh, with IRA and double standards is that I feel that IRA um, is basically just saying, don't be a hypocrite. Like, if you feel that nation states don't have a right to exist and you, you think that we should live in some amorphous, you know, chaos or be governed by Amazon, like, that's fine. But the but but don't say, I think, you know, the state of Israel should be the first state that should go out of business in the nation state system. But I simultaneously think that the state of Palestine should come into existence, you know, yesterday. So I think that for me is what the double standards issue is, is just, you know, try and be consistent. There are people who say, I don't think nation states should have a right to exist. They're very few. But, you know, those people exist. But I think what is trying, but I think what it is mainly aimed at is the people who have, you know, as you say, a particular obsession with Israel and the character of the Israeli nation state above and beyond all others. I mean, we can we can extend this definition to other things. You know, Joel, you and I have both spent time in, in a country where um, there is not complete separation of church and state. You know, the queen is uh, is not only, you know, a beloved figure, but she's also the head of the Church of England and she's also the monarch. Um, you know, we could say similarly, Israel has a configuration that is more like the UK than in the United States. So I think what it's trying to say is, you know, don't single out Israel for characteristics of nation states that exist in many other parts of of the world. You know, basically, don't be a hypocrite. Um, and I think that that's all right. I don't have a problem with saying, you know, you want to have some intellectual rigor. You know, if you want to if you want to be an anti-Zionist, be an anti-Zionist, but at least have some sort of intellectual rigor to that that isn't particularly only about your obsession with Israel, but also conforms to your larger understanding of the way the world should function and the way nation states exist and, you know, how our ideological and political configurations in the universe should should align. So I, I think that's that's all right. I think the problem is, again, when we get back to this question of the enforcement mechanism, that if you do something that, you know, is perfectly acceptable by the text of the IHRA definition and somebody comes along and said, well, you know, that's not good enough for me. There's no there's no address to come to. And I think maybe that's probably also a, po- a problem with educating people about the IHRA definition and why I'm not really particularly inclined to try and come up with many other definitions. I mean, we have pretty, if not universal buy-in, I mean, apologies to my colleagues in Jewish studies and academia, but outside of them, we have mostly universal buy-in. I, I disagree. I, I don't agree with that statement. Though. I don't think, I think for many Jews there are, but in the left, there's massive consternation with it. And whether, as you say, it's real or it's not real, it, there isn't buy-in. Like, it, it's just not true, right? Like, and instead of having a conversation with some of, often on the left, what are you, you know, it's become a totem and that's my worry. And instead of just saying, okay, let why can't we improve upon it? What's the problem? Well, I, I think we don't necessarily need to improve upon it. I think we also need to do more educating about it because I think it has become totemic that, IRA silences free speech. And this is, you know, the discourse we're seeing in the media. I wonder how many people who subscribe to that point of view have actually read the document and thought about it carefully or whether they've just, um, you know, heard that this is what it does. And maybe also, frankly, seen that happen, perhaps within one of these umbrella organizations of Jewish of Jewish life. Um, and decided that the IHRA is useless to them because they don't feel that there's, um, you know, there's a way to do that. So I think you need education and enforcement rather than alternate definitions that if, 
let's say if you want to complain that Ira is totemic, I think we can say that the other definitions are extremely obscure to most folks outside of a particular niche of, you know, the Jewish academic world. I mean, you don't have FIFA and, you know, Volkswagen and, um, you know, I, I don't know, 35 nation states and other people signing on to the JVA or Nexus. So if we're going to put our energy somewhere. I, I we think that's an important there. point, Sarah, because I don't think that's the purpose. The JDA, from what I've understood, is not about legislating or, or, or adaptation, right? In some places it is, in some places it's not. I worry, here's my worry, right? I I agree that there's there's gray areas within in Iran who gets to decide, who's the judge. And that's really difficult, right? Because when you like let's take the UK for example, right? The UK struggled the Jewish community with Jeremy Corbyn for far too long. And it was terrible. And don't let anyone, you know, anyone who's listening to this who's, you know, feels like we're overagging it, go speak to a British Jew, right? And ask them how it was. And the answer was, it was bloody terrible, right? I mean, like, no one wants that. And so, but then Ira came, becomes this thing, like, that's the thing that helped us get, you know, that's the thing that we asked for and that's the thing we got. The problem is that Ira's a monopoly, not it, but the people who support it. So it has good actors and it has not so good actors who are on board with it. It's got everyone. So you live or die by that monopoly. And because no one's there to say you're part of it and you're not, you've got people taking it, whether it's the Trump administration trying to call every single humanitarian group that they didn't like on Israel anti-Semitic and putting them on the list somewhere whether it's NGO Monitor, for example, who are now asking publicly that every NGO who receives money from the US government anywhere in the world subscribes to the IRA definition. I, I mean, these are these are vetting standards that are crazy. And one thing that I will pick up is, yes, we have hate speech laws in America. We don't have federal definitions on what these different hate crimes are. Like, there is no definition of racism against Black people or against uh, you know, against anything else. So it's not, you know, from all my work with the hate speech community and the civil rights community, no one likes definitions for this particular reason. It always gets out of control. And then instead of talking about racism, you're talking about definitions and that's never good. So that's all I'd say is like, I, I agree with you that it, it's it's less about the, and that's why I really don't put the intent behind the documents. I think it's a terrible thing people do to people. I think everyone's trying to tackle this at a different place. But I think because there is this public policy debate in America and around the world, and that there are actors who are using definitions of anti-Semitism to advance political places and political solutions, which is a tragedy in and of itself, right? Therefore, there is a political response. And that doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me feel nice inside. Uh, and I would rather get to the purpose of saying, use all the documents out there as people who are trying to stop anti-Semitism and use the one that helps you. If you feel like you fell into a gray area with the IHRA, use Nexus or the JDA if it helps you get you out. If it doesn't, fine. But use it so that you're not there saying, well, this is, this is where I can go and no further. All we're trying to do, in my view, as Jews, is to say to those in charge, listen to us. Don't just, and that's not, listen to us does not mean listen to the acronymic Jewish or, you know, what I think I had it, the macha autocracy, whether they exist here or elsewhere. It's listen to your constituents. 
The fact that every JCC in this country it is a terrifying proposition to leave your child in, not because they're not wonderful people, but because the first thing that you go through is three phases of plexiglass and told that they're only going to get one field trip a quarter because it's too dangerous for the kids to be out. And no, we're not pretending because people are shooting up shawls, right? That's what people are worried about. Can we? T- and no, it's not just white nationalists before someone's like, and therefore don't worry about anything else, right? Like, that's the thing we want to get talking about. So can we please not spend all of our time talking about definitions, right? I think that's, for me, the major thing. And if some groups need to inject themselves into a conversation to make sure the political debate isn't lost, so be it. But I think that's where it recenters. So use all of them. Don't be monopolistic on any of them. Uh, and, you know, in my view, watch your lang- watch your words rather than your policy positions. That's my main message that I take from all this. Avoid anti-Semitic tropes, language, terminology. If you think you might be crossing the line, maybe don't do it. But don't police people's policy positions because you're always going to lose doing that, in my view. OK, I just want to, you know, have a quick rejoinder to be, you know, maybe um, have, a, you know, firm placed on me in the shul and I'll never be able allowed to return even when, you know, even when Kiddush is finally there by, you know, my, my real reason for returning to shul. But I guess what I wanted to say was clearly in every one of these definitions, we can have, I guess, what we would call good faith actors and bad faith actors of people who, you know, are acting in the spirit of the definition and acting those are not. But I have to say, I am really concerned that the JDA in particular has had some actual, you know, anti-Semites who have signed up saying, you know, actually, this suits me just fine, because now I can do what I need to do via your definition. Or people that, you know, I think have policy positions that, um, I don't think or uh, that, you know, clearly to me seem um, disconcerting, you know, people who have testified before Congress saying it's fine that, you know, I'm going to equate Zionism and Nazism. Um, you know, in the 21st century, I don't know if those definitions are working for me personally in the way we're going to define anti-Semitism. I mean, obviously, you can't control necessarily who signs your petition. I don't think that they went out to you know, went out on the street and said, you know, please, Anasamant, please sign this um, to make this even more difficult for us to sell these alternatives to IRA as, you know, compelling, compelling documents. But I think that, you know, you also, it, it's not just, um, again, it's not just about um, what the text says, it's about the people who are utilizing it for its own goals. And I think if you have people who really, like, obviously don't support what I think the mainstream consensus is about anti-Semitism in the sense that like these are people who are actual anti-Semites are signing up to your document. Maybe your document, whether you realize that the text is flawed or not, some um, deeply embedded um, flaw that that makes this seem appealing to a certain group of people. Um, I think we've also seen in the UK, the other thing that's also very problematic is that if you are extremely careful and you read these documents, um, you know, um, with a fine-tooth comb, maybe in a very, you know, Talmudic kind of way, you can um, do things that are deeply anti-Semitic that violate none of these documents. So this is sort of the concern about um, David Miller, for example, is that, uh, or, or otherwise, is that if you, if you um, maneuver very carefully, um, you can manage to be an anti-Semite and not run aground of any of these definitions. David- David Miller, ironically, from what I read, ran afoul of both of the documents. And as a Bristol alumni, shout out to our Bristol University constantly failing Jewish students 2021. Thank you, Bristol University. So let, let me ask you that it's a quick uh, like lightning round question. Like, sort of things which I'm not sure are included in either document, but seem rather concerning to me. Um, 
I guess one example in Belgium recently and, you know, instituted a ban on shrita. Um, okay, that, that seems like a pretty significant impediment to the flourishing of Jewish life in the country of Belgium. Um, I don't know that that is necessarily um, condemned by either, any of the uh, definitions that are being uh, promoted. Um, recently, the Republican Party of Virginia scheduled their primary election for Shabbat, and they refused any accommodation for Shomer Shabbos Republicans in Virginia. So that also, it's like, a you know, if you're Shomer Shabbos Republican in the state of Virginia, the party saying we're not going to, you have no voice in selecting our nominees and we're not interested in any type of accommodation, absentee ballot, anything like that to accommodate you. So that also seems like a way to disenfranchise a whole segment of our community. Um, and I also don't know that, any, that that falls afoul of any of these definitions per se. So I guess, I don't know, like what about these other other kind of systemic, like, like you know, impediments on the flourishing of Jewish life that uh, maybe like these uh, documents and their focus on um, combating anti-Zionism, anti-Semitic anti-Zionism, maybe are are missing some of these uh, these other areas. I mean, you know, the challenge is: is anti-Semitic is anti-Semitism a hatred of Jews, or is it discrimination against Jews? Right? Uh, for me, it's very clear. If you make no accommodation of Jews, or if you're banning Jewish ritual slaughter, it, you are discriminating against Jews. Uh, it all depends about how you use the terminology, right? Uh, I'm very happy with calling those anti-Semitic. I am. I'm like, if someone is making zero accommodation for you to participate in the democratic process, and it is impossible for you to do so and be a Torah true Jew, and if you, if you believe in the, you know, if you're an Orthodox Jew, it's anti-Semitism. How could it not be? If everyone else gets an accommodation and you don't, is it hatred of Jews? Maybe not. Maybe so. I don't know about Belgium, but it's definitely discrimination. So whether they don't want to be accused of anti-Semitism or they want to be accused of discrimination, take your pick. But, um, you know, you can't disenfranchise Jews in that way in either case for me. I don't know, but Sarah, over to you. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about speech, but I don't know that we've talked about act or image or these kinds of things because that also seems to be very problematic. So if I, um, so let's take Belgium. If I want to have that grotesque carnival where I parade anti-Semitic puppets through the street that are, you know, seem to embody the most, you know, vile tropes of anti-Semitism, but I don't put a sign there that says, you know, I hate Jews. Am I violating any one of these definitions? I don't know. It's all in your interpretation. So similarly to the, you know, sort of famous Mears one mural that, you know, was, uh, became caught up in the Jeremy Corbyn affair. It's all in one's interpretation of these, um, of these images or, you know, these acts. Um, so that's, that's a problem. And I don't think well, well- also, Belgium is a member of the IHRA, and just demonstrating the point that who cares? <laughs> it doesn't seem to do anything. So I think there's obviously um, a question that, you know, we're obsessing over the nature of speech and, you know, maybe of writing or of, um, you know, text, but we don't have any definition that seems to cover acts. And that uh, would, you know, that's problematic. Rabbi, just one, one thing, I, something I've noticed it's weird being an immigrant in this country because you notice things in different ways from people who grew up here. And I'm sure Sarah saw that as when, when she moved to the UK. I have found that the American Jewish community is so sensitive to anti-Zionist anti-Semitism for good reason. That it, if it is, it cuts off the escape hatch, right? If things do go badly and during the, and for some, not all, you know, during the Trump administration, what followed, it was pretty threatening for Jews, right? Like we saw acts of violent anti-Semitism we haven't seen before in a very scary way. Um, if, 
if to claim that we should have a Jewish homeland is institutionally racist, that's very scary. And therefore, there's a there's a real watching, even though it might not often today be as violent as what we see coming from other sides of the political spectrum. It is deeply unnerving in a very real way, given where Jewish history and Jews feel. I think that's often why, you know, to even explain this podcast, why have we spent 40 minutes talking about anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism in Israel, and five minutes on like other things? It's because there's a reason that people feel like this. The obsession isn't just because we're all neurotic, though we are. It's because we we worry deeply that our, our desire to have a place where we're not a minority is fundamentally, some people think, is a racist endeavor. And how do we even deal with that policing? Do we just say those people are hateful who say that? That's a difficult emotional topic for us to, to confront in a way that I think for British Jews or from Jews from, from minority majority countries where it isn't civic national is not as challenging. As Sarah said, England's a nation, you know, the UK's a nation state with a head of state that's part of a religion, right? It's not as, as fundamentally paradigm shifting as the American experiment is to what would be an ethnically driven national state. Well, it seems to me this is another example of the kind of, you know, double standards that we would find um, that the IRA definition is actually useful. There are plenty of communities in the United States that are diasporas that envision a homeland overseas. I don't tell Indian Americans that they can't, um, you know, they can't view India as, um, you know, as their homeland, whether or not India is maybe a deeply racist country divided between Hindus and Muslims. I don't tell Irish Americans that Ireland is not a homeland of theirs because, frankly, it had, you know, guerrilla violence um, going on, you know, for decades and today remains, you know, quite an unsettled, quite an unsettled situation divided between Catholics and Protestants. And I can, you know, I can find many other examples, Mexicans, Japanese Americans. So why is it that Israel, um, with a Jewish diaspora that sees this other place as their homeland and a nation state that exists on the map is particularly problematic. Um, so I think that's double standards, you know, is helpful. I mean, the, there is, I mean, the plight of the Palestinians probably indicates why people have problems, but I take your point in terms of diasporas are allowed to have opinions about their home countries, but I'd say that, you know, the constant never-ending conflict with the Palestinians, the ongoing occupation, and this seemingly now inability to perceive what an exit will look like. Two states is not on the horizon. We're moving to confederacies. We're talking about what are the civic rights of those that they just forever residents. I think that's the sui generis rather than just it's all about the Jews. So I, I do think that... I think it's sui generis because um, the discourse around Israel-Palestine is that the solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict is the state of Israel doesn't have a right to exist. We don't say that about India or Mexico or Japan. I think that's where... Um, IRA in particular intervenes because you can say you want a confederation, you can say you want a one-state solution, you can say you want to have a 12-state solution, but you can't say under IRA that you don't want to have a state of Israel existing on well, that, the But, the, but the hold on, no, but, so, but if you advocate, like, it's like the heat paradox, right? So I'm a philosophy undergrad, I don't have my, uh, my doctor or anything else, but, you know, I remember the vagrant paradox very well. Like, at what point does the heat paradox flip over? So if you're a one-state advocate for the Jewish state, that's not 
But if you're a one-state advocate for the Palestinian state, and again, not saying that you're throwing the Jews to the sea, but Israel fundamentally as a Jewish state no longer exists, that is anti that accord that is a double standard anti-Semitism. But if you're on the heat paradox on the other way, saying, well, one democratic state, it's not. That's where I think there's that's where the confusion comes from, and where I don't think that advocation for on itself where you're not saying you're throwing Jews into the sea. And by the way, I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's going to happen. But I don't think holding the opinion that you want to see one democratic state with a right of return for Palestinians is institutionally anti-Semitic and irredeemably so. And I don't think it's a double standard. I think there are cases in, in international rights law where people can advocate for that without being saying that they are irredeemably anti-Semitic. And I think that the problem with the double standard as an example of the IHRA has a gray area that is uncomfortable because those who want to police it, police to say that is, that is anti-Semitic to say that Israel shouldn't exist in that way. And I, I just, I disagree. And that's, that should be allowed without claiming that one proponent is anti-Semitic and one is not. I, I would suggest that, you know, maybe in addition to these definitions of anti-Semitism, we actually need another document or we need at least another, you know, conversation, which I think we're actively having, which is that the flip side of anti-Semitism is often Jewish racism. And that, you know, that in and of itself deserves its own conversation. Does it have to be folded into a document about anti-Semitism? I'm not sure, but it definitely... Um, it's a great point. It's a great point. Had. And one actually that's happening, you know, for better or worse, let's say in the UK, which is obviously seen a dramatic spike in anti-Semitism, but the Board of Deputies last week just put out, you know, this huge report about Jewish racism in the community and the ways that they're going to hopefully contestedly go about addressing these things. So I, I think that the conversation doesn't have to end with this document. I mean, it's only opening to another another avenue of um, discourse. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I want to end with uh, just uh, for, for those who listen to the podcast, who are members of our shul, when, when, when and where can they see you around on Shalom? Do you have a prediction on, uh, Sarah, are we going to have to have a full kiddish before we coax you back to shul? Or, or maybe you'll make an appearance uh, now that you're vaccinated, now that, uh, you know, the, you know, the end is in sight. The lights at the end of the tunnel is here. What, what, what's your, do you, have a, do you have a date yet or a plan? Or are you going to take it one day at a time? Uh, one day at a time, but I'm hoping I might be in shul for Shavuot. Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. I look forward to seeing you in Shavuot. Joel, I saw you made an appearance with your daughter. Uh, uh, brief appearance. <laughs> yeah. I did. Uh, I'll say, yeah. You know, the, the wonders of Jewish parenting, as I found, is that the rabbi's beautiful ability to give my child a lollipop has made her love shul. But it also has had the negative effect that I can't go to shul without her because she thinks I'm being cruel. So now that, thank God, we've got Gun Shabbat back, um, I will be a regular occurrence and my daughter will be running around the aisle, thank God. And it's beautiful to see the community back in Joel again. Wonderful. And those who listen to the podcast can now accost both of you and continue this <laughs> conversation and purpose. When, when you try to come and dive in and talk to God, people will talk to you about anti-Semitism. So that, that's your reward for appearing on the podcast. So well, thank, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you well, both so much. So, I think we're so thrilled to have a building. I mean, this has been an amazing experience, actually, of keeping a community going without having a physical space. But I think we be very happy to be, you know, Jewish professionals and professional Jews pestered in shul once again, because it's been a long, impactly, it's been a long and sort of sad year without that. So looking, for, looking forward to better times ahead. Rabbi Sermon, that's the only thing that, you know, we, we should say here that that's the danger of having us on the podcast. Excellent. All right. Thank you both so much and really, really appreciate it.